navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Great to see everybody. Uh, I can't believe it's December, and uh, this is the final part, part four. This was a a relatively shorter series than the ones I usually do, a four-parter. This will be our our completing part and last seminar on how to litigate a construction accident injury case. And I chose this topic of motion practice to be the last one as opposed to trial or some of the other uh, ending uh, parts for these series I've been doing because motion practice in a construction accident uh, litigation case, in my opinion, is really where the rubber meets the road. Um, And before I get into this, I just wanna give a pitch to the Academy. If you are not a member yet, and this is like the fifth or sixth or seventh time you've attended a CLE at the Academy, maybe you should consider uh, joining. Uh, It's just, it's a great organization. We do great things. We've been just, uh, as Michelle said, screening the new Court of Appeals judges uh, to be the next chief judge of the Court of Appeals in New York State. There's so many different um, uh, opportunities to get involved in things at a statewide level and even a local level through this organization. So if you're not a member already, please join and you'll get a discount already. Just speak to Michelle, she'll hook you up. All right, so motion practice. Now, when I'm talking about motions in a construction accident uh, litigation, I'm generally talking about summary judgment motions. Now, if you've been practicing law, chances are you've handled a few summary judgment motions, either filing them, uh, posing them, cross-moving, arguing them, and you may have even gotten a decision on it that went up on appeal. Well, in the world of construction accident litigation, it is more the norm than not to get involved in summary judgment motion practice. And it is quite often the norm that those decisions by the trial judges on these motions are going to go up on appeal because there's going to be an unhappy party on one side of the decision, usually, and uh, they're the ones who would likely appeal it. And as we talked in earlier parts, the case law is a little different in different departments, and every fact pattern is a little bit unique. So there's always that wild card. You never really can feel confident that you're going to win uh, one of these motions or lose one. You can you can hope for the best, but you never know. There's a lot of variables at play between the judge who's deciding it at the trial level uh, and uh, your adversary and the facts of your case and the law applicable to your fact pattern and then what will ultimately happen on appeal. But in any event, a time is going to come when motion practice is prime and ready and we should all avail ourselves of it. If you're a plaintiff, you need to be looking to file a summary judgment motion in your construction accident case. And if you are a defendant, you should be looking to file summary judgment motions in a construction accident case. And the time to do this is pretty much as a practical matter when your depositions are all done. You know, discovery's done, you've gotten, you've seen all the contracts, all the work orders, everything's been exchanged, you've questioned 
everybody involved, the plaintiff's been questioned, any witnesses, the general contractor has been questioned, and um, you know the site safety people, so and the employer and the third parties or the manufacturer of the equipment involved. So you don't need to wait to file the note of issue to make your motion for summary judgment. As a plaintiff, I'm always anxious to move my case forward. So I'm not waiting on anything ever if I have a chance to move forward. So once my transcripts are in and I feel that I'm ready to go, uh, I will start working on the motion for summary judgment. And uh, if it just so happens we filed the note of issue at the same time or have already filed it, uh, that's okay. My point is you don't need to wait to file the note of issue to make your motion, uh, but be careful that you don't wait too long after you file a note of issue. The CPLR uh, provides for 120 days, about four months, from when you file the note of issue to when summary judgments in all civil cases in New York State must be filed. That time is quite often shortened by your trial judge, the judge or you know, I say trial judge, uh, the individual assignment part, the IAS, uh, whoever the judge is overseeing your case, um, that judge will often uh, narrow that window quite often to 60 days. Uh, so make sure that you always check your compliance conference orders. Make sure you always check your preliminary conference orders in your cases. This applies to all cases, not just construction accident cases. And uh, when in doubt, check the judge's rules. If there's nothing in any of the court orders about filing dates and deadlines for summary judgment, and if there's nothing in the judge's individual rules, um, then you have 120 days. But if the judge has narrowed it, you don't want to blow it and uh, decide to make your motion only to find that your time has run. Um, that's bad form at the, at the best, at the worst, it could be malpractice. Um, so get it going, make sure uh, in all of your cases, especially a substantial construction accident case, get your motions filed timely, okay? Now, there's benefits to all sides for making these summary judgment motions. And it's similar benefits you may see in other cases. But in construction accident cases where the labor laws are, are applicable, um, that means you have laws, laws to move for. And to bring us all back to uh, law school days and early years of practice, uh, when you make a motion for summary judgment, it means that there's a law that applies to the facts of your case. That means you should win whatever your motion is being made and there has to be an understanding that there are no issues of fact. Everybody agrees these are the facts of the situation, of the accident, of the case. This is the testimony. This is what it is. And we, the moving party, believes that the labor laws, as they apply to this area in this fact pattern, are clear that either uh, the plaintiff should get their case dismissed, the plaintiff should get summary judgment, the defendant should get summary judgment, or whatever it may be. So as in any other case, uh, if there's an issue of fact, then summary judgment's never going to be appropriate. Most construction accident cases that I've come across, most, certainly not all, the facts usually are what they are. Um, you know who the employer is. You know who the owner and or general contractor are. You know who the players are. Um, 
What happened at the accident scene is usually what happened. Somebody fell, something fell on them, someone was injured. There's usually not too many factual disagreements. Now, if they are, if there is a case you have where a worker says, I fell off a scaffold, and that's the whole claim, but then there's a big dispute, and some say, no, they're saying they fell off a scaffold, but no one saw it, and we think they just, you know, tripped uh, at the job site, and they just try to make this a claim of a fall. Then, obviously, there's a factual dispute, and summary judgment is going to be denied if it's made by anybody. But if for the most part, the facts are what they are. Uh, in my case, which the materials uh, apply to here that I've talked about, the Gary Harrigan case, where the uh, aerial lift toppled over and he fell, the facts were what they were. He testified what happened. All the witnesses testified what happened. There weren't any disputes as to factual matters where the dispute lied as to whether or not uh, the plaintiff uh, had made out a labor law 240 uh, subdivision one case or whether we as plaintiffs made out our 240 subdiv 241 subdivision six claim uh, and the defense whether or not they had an argument that our client was a recalcitrant worker or was the sole proximate cause. And these are issues of law. So in my case, the Gary Harrigan case, the, uh, the issues were ripe for determination as a matter of law. There were not issues of fact. Both sides agreed. And if you are making a motion, you're stating there are no issues of fact. So if a defense is making a motion, there's no issues of fact then the plaintiff can benefit from that and say the same and vice versa. So the benefits, obviously, if you're the plaintiff and you make a motion for summary judgment, if you win it on a labor law 240 subdivision one case, if you win that motion, you've won your case. You've won liability. There is no argument as to comparative fault. Comparative fault is or contributory negligence is not a defense. Uh, so if you win summary judgment on a labor law 240 subdivision one case, the scaffold law, the height gravity related cases, you win and you move on to damages. If you win a labor law 241 subdivision six case, that's the industrial code uh, law, violations of an industrial code, you kind of win your case. You've, you've established as a matter of law that they violated uh, the law, uh, they violated uh, provisions of the industrial code, and you'll get charges to the jury of that. However, uh, the defense can still argue comparative fault or contributory negligence. So you're not a, you're not getting out of a trial on the happening of the accident and the facts of the accident, uh, even if you win summary judgment on two forty one subdivision six. Similarly, if you win on a Labor Law 200 motion for summary judgment as a plaintiff, which is basically the negligence, the common law negligence, um, you still are open to an argument that there was comparative fault or contributory negligence, just like in a 241 subdivision six case. Uh, so you still could potentially be looking at a trial on the happening of the accident uh, before you get to damages. So you still wanna make those motions as a plaintiff, you want to move on either all three that you've alleged, Labor Law 200, 241 Subdivision 6, or 240 Subdivision 1. And um, unless you feel you're strong just on one of them or just a few, whichever ones you feel are the strongest, those are the ones you want to move on. And as a defendant, 
you have great benefits of bringing a summary judgment motion as well. First off, uh, if you move to dismiss the plaintiff's complaint uh, or move to dismiss the causes of action of the various labor laws that are asserted in the complaint, then you win the case. Plaintiff gets sent packing, uh, depending on which ones that you're successful on. Uh, if only one summary judgment motion is being made uh, by the plaintiff on labor law 200 and you cross move and you knock out 200, that's gone. Um, but as a defendant, you have to make a motion to dismiss all of the claims raised by the plaintiff in the plaintiff's complaint if you want to be out of the case completely. So if there's a complaint that alleges violations of labor laws 200, 241 subdivision six and 240 subdivision one on the defense side, you're going to move to dismiss all three of those. And if you're successful, then you've hit a home run and you're, the case is done. Uh, obviously, that's a huge benefit. You're going to be a, a hero to your client, the insured, as well as to the insurance company. Now, the other thing that the defense side needs to consider when it's time for summary judgment motions is not just moving to dismiss the plaintiff's causes of action, but it's motions against your fellow defendants. In construction accident litigation cases, it is more often than not multiple defendants. You'll usually have an owner. You'll usually have a contractor, perhaps subcontractors. Uh, you'll likely have a third party who's the employer in the case. So what you want to do if you're representing one of the defendants or if you're representing the employer in the third party case, whatever it may be, when it's time for summary judgment, you want to move to um, enforce perhaps you have a contract for indemnification. For those of you who don't know what indemnification is, it's basically a, a Passover that if I sue the owner and the general contractor, and they both put in answers. They have two defense firms. They have two insurance companies. The owner has been sitting on a contract with the general contractor that says, if we get sued, you're going to indemnify us, you're good, which means your, your insurance is going to cover for us. You're going to pay for defense costs. You're going to side defense counsel. You're going to indemnify us for defense and uh, settlement and insurance costs. Now, they always don't always do that, even if it's by contract. And so the owner would have to bring in their own lawyers and put up their own defense and spend their own money. And if they're not getting an agreement for an indemnification from the general contractor per contract, uh, then summary judgment is the time that they ask the court to say, listen, here's the contract. They have to indemnify us. And so you need to do that because in essence, that's the same as getting your uh, client out of the case for the most part. Um, and depending on the allegations and depending on as a defense attorney, who your client is, the employer, maybe the rental company for a piece of equipment, maybe manufacturer, maybe a subcontractor who wasn't really involved. This is your opportunity to either get out of the case completely or to transfer loss, the loss transfer of indemnification, contribution. Um, sometimes it's by contract you have it. Sometimes you can argue as a matter of common law operation, you should be entitled to summary judgment against a co defendant for whatever reason. So there's lots of benefits and motion practice 
especially in these construction accident litigation cases, because they really are controlled by the specific labor laws, as opposed to other negligence cases that have various laws that may or may not apply. Sometimes it's just, is it negligence? Is it not negligence? But here, because we have these specific laws, um, they should be resolved as a matter of law. You don't want to be delayed by either side, spending more money, going to trial on a case where you may have a chance of losing at trial um, only because you failed to timely make a motion for summary judgment. So you want to make these motions regardless of your position, either as a plaintiff or a defendant. Now, an additional benefit for a plaintiff is if you are granted summary judgment on liability against a defendant, whether it's on 200, 241 subdivision six or 240 subdivision one, like any other civil litigation in New York state, if you get summary judgment granted and you enter that judgment on liability with the clerk of the court, interest starts to run on any resulting uh, damages judgment, okay? What that means is there is 9% by statute, which is the amount of interest that runs on a judgment from the time the judgment is entered until an ultimate damages award is entered as a judgment. If it's a private entity like the city of New York or the transit authority, I believe it's 4% is the statutory interest. It may be different these days, but that's how I last recalled. Someone can check me on that. Now, what happens is as a practical matter, and what happened in the Harrigan case is if we got, and I'm not going to be a spoiler just yet, but if we did get summary judgment granted to us, um, on the motions, then that would mean that interest at 9% starts running until ultimately, if the case goes up on appeal and we're waiting a couple of years for a trial, then we have a trial and a jury awards money. If a jury awards a million dollars, okay, uh, one year later, or let's say, uh, in, yeah, about one year later, um, let's you're going to be getting about $90,000 uh, tacked onto that in interest. And if it's two years later, you're going to be getting $180,000 tacked on. And if it's three years that you finally get that award, maybe the verdict goes up on appeal and then it gets sustained, you know, you're going to get $270,000. And if it's a super huge case with some construction accident injuries are, and you get a $10 million verdict, then you're looking at $900,000 a year in interest that would then be applied to it. That's big money. 9% is a lot, especially on a potential big uh, judgment. So that's a benefit as a plaintiff. You want to get that in because then you can use that as a bargaining chip and it can increase your uh, settlement uh, posture. Because now if you have summary judgment, and uh, the defense still doesn't want to settle the case, even though they're looking at a damages-only trial. They may say, oh, we're going to appeal it. Okay, you're going to appeal it. That's going to take a year. All right, we're, we're happy to let the interest accrue and keep it going if you want to take that chance. Uh, but then, you know, it starts to put some pressure on your adversary that, wow, if we do end up losing this, this is going to, you know, really cost us even more money. So it's, it's a huge benefit for a plaintiff if you can get summary judgment awarded uh, because of that interest, okay? Now, for here's what you sort of need to, to show in establishing uh, entitlement to summary judgment. 
Now, on a 240 subdivision one case, the scaffolding law, the gravity-related cases, uh, these are the cases where either uh, a worker falls from a height and is injured or something that's being hoisted, lifted, moved, stored, placed, falls from a height onto a worker and injures that party. In order to be successful and win summary judgment on those cases, you have to show, first of all, that the labor law applies, labor law 240 subdivision one, that statute that we looked at in uh, earlier seminars, uh, whether that actually applies to the facts of your case. And if you can show it does apply, and if you can show that there was a height-related injury, either a fall or something fell on the worker, uh, and that it was a result of a failure to provide the worker with proper safety protection, and that failure was approximate cause of the injuries, then you win. It's absolute liability, you win. There is no defense of contributory negligence. There's no defense of comparative fault. The defense, I guarantee you, in response to your motion as a plaintiff for summary judgment under the scaffold law will be that it's all the plaintiff's fault. They'll show all the things that the plaintiff or worker did improperly, and they will try and package that as a sole proximate cause defense, which is the only defense, and that dismisses the case. So there's some risk to the plaintiff too. You can make out your argument on summary judgment, say there's no issues of fact, violation of the statute, proximate cause. The defense can oppose and say, we agree, no issues of fact, but behavior of the plaintiff was such that it's the sole proximate cause of the accident, if the defendant wins that argument, then your client, the plaintiff's client's case is dismissed, is done. You get sent home packing, okay? So that's the ultimate risk in these cases. You can get summary judgment and, and, and just go to damages or the case can get thrown out. And again, comparative fault doesn't matter. Contributory negligence doesn't matter on a scaffold case. The only defense uh, to a motion for summary judgment under the scaffold law is either the plaintiff has failed to make out a prima facie case to shift the burden, meaning that this is not does not fall within the categories that the statute considers. For example, maybe they fell from a height while they were you know climbing on their car or uh, working at home or whatever it was. If that's not something that's a, a you know, work on a new building and a renovation and, and all the things listed in the statute, then it can get dismissed as not being applicable uh, under the statute. If there are issues of fact, the defense can argue there's issues of fact, it should be denied. And um, if there's causation issues, uh, that it wasn't approximate cause of any of the injuries alleged, that can be a basis uh, to dismiss the plaintiffs or to win uh, and defend against a motion for summary judgment. But for the most part, assuming that the plaintiff uh, is making an appropriate motion, it falls within the labor law 240 subdivision one, and that the injuries were caused as a result of this height-related accident, then really the only defense uh, that can be offered is it was the plaintiff's uh, sole proximate cause of the accident. And that's generally what a defense uh, firm will do is focus on that. And they'll throw every bit of um, negligence, because there can be negligence, 
Uh, you don't have to show as a plaintiff that your client is free from negligence, uh, as long as you can show that there's a statutory violation that caused it. So be ready for the defense to throw everything in the kitchen sink to show how it was all your client's fault as the plaintiff. And if you're on the defense side, that's what you have to do. Now, what sole proximate cause means and sort of what the law is on it um, is, well, first of all, the law as stated to prove liability under 240 subdivision one, the scaffold law, is the plaintiff need only show that the statute was violated, labor law 240 subdivision one was violated, and that the violation was the proximate cause of the injury sustained. That's it. There's lots of cases and they're all the materials I I gave you, okay? And the Court of Appeals, the case of Bland, many of you have heard of, says that once it's determined that the worker or the contractor uh, failed to give a worker proper protection, absolute liability is unavoidable under 240 subdivision one. So then what can the defense do? Well, they have to argue that even if the plaintiff has shown that the statute was violated, um, and even if uh, the plaintiff has shown that there's causation, they can then argue that either the statute isn't applicable or they could say the plaintiff was a sole proximate cause. And there's also a, another phrase known as recalcitrant worker. And what does that mean? Here's what it means. And, and all this is super important, everyone, because knowing what to prepare your clients for, for depositions, knowing what questions to ask, what we spoke about last time at depositions, this is all the material that you're going to use in your motions. And that's why I told you, I'm always asking the employer and the general contractor, did you ever tell my client, the worker, that he or she has to wear this, you know, um, harness? Did you ever tell them they have to lock down the wheels? Did you ever tell them anything specifically? And did they ever fail to follow your guidance? Uh, did they ever refuse to do something you told them to do? You ask all these questions, because here's the law. Here's what it says, all right? Um, to show that a plaintiff is the sole proximate cause of an injury, the plaintiff, uh, the defendant rather, must establish that the plaintiff had adequate safety devices available, that he knew both that they were available and that he was expected to use them, but that he chose for no good reason not to do so. And that had he not made that choice, he would not have been injured, okay? That's basically how sole proximate cause works. And another way of talking about a recalcitrant worker is sort of the same thing. It's saying that, look, we gave our worker and the plaintiff in particular, every appropriate device and told them to use it, but they were recalcitrant. They were like, nah, I don't need it. That's why it's their fault. We can't, we can only do so much, but if we, if we're not on site for, for 10 minutes and they decide to take off their harness and they fall, it's not fair to put the burden on us. And I agree with that. So again, to argue this recalcitrant worker defense, which is the same as sole proximate cause, it requires a showing under the law that the injured worker refused to use the safety devices that were provided by the owner or employer. Okay. So it's simply not available. If you're the plaintiff making this motion for summary judgment under the scaffold law, and if you can show that, um, that the defense cannot establish 
all of these things. They can't say that the plaintiff had adequate devices to use, that they knew of, that they were available and should have worn them, and that they chose for no good reason not to use them, um, then, then the defendant's not going to have that uh, argument to make. And that's why the factual record is so important, because in any 240 subdivision one scaffold motion, that's the tipping point, no pun intended, of where the two motions butt head to head. Plaintiff is saying, as a matter of law, no safety devices. Defendant is saying, oh, we gave you everything. You just didn't use them. It's all your fault. Okay. That's how these play out. And sometimes it's tough. And we're going to talk about the Harrigan case. And you can see how it was tough to determine whether or not the, uh, the, my client was the sole proximate cause. Um, the defense argued very strongly and believed very strongly that our client was the sole proximate cause. And we felt to the contrary. And that's what played out in the motion practice. If you're listening via podcast, the first verification code is L as in litigation, C as in construction, A as in accident, 431. Again, that code is LCA 431. So let's talk about how this is actually done. Let's get into some practical work here. Knowing that an appeal in these types of cases is likely to follow uh, the decision by the uh, trial court level judge who's going to decide the summary judgment motion, knowing that an appeal is likely to follow, it is that much more important that you make sure to dot your I's and cross your T's and make sure that you submit a proper motion, that everything is required that is required is filed, and that you make the appropriate record uh, not only for the trial judge or the trial court level judge, um, but eventually for the appellate court. Because if it's not in your motions, if it's not part of this record, the appellate court is not going to be able to consider it. So if you forget to attach a testimony, uh, if you forget to attach an exhibit that's important, if you forget to attach something that an expert has affirmed to uh, that you think is important for the case, uh, you're not going to be able to get the benefit of that in your in a decision uh, from the trial level or from the appellate division. And the appellate division is allowed to search their record when they're reviewing these motions uh, that go up on appeal of the decision. So if it gets sent up to the appellate division by either party uh, requesting or filing for an appeal of the judge's uh, lower court decision, uh, as long as you have everything in the kitchen sink in there, you can ask them to search the record. You can point things out in oral argument. You could highlight information in your brief, uh, but you've got to have it in the record. So you have to really make this a robust motion, uh, whichever side that you're on, knowing the importance of it, much more so than in a, a simple negligence case. All right, so obviously here's what you need to file. And a lot of this is the same for other cases, but just to make sure that you're clear. You need to file a notice of motion if you're filing. Uh, if you're a cross movement, so if your your adversary beats you to it and they file a motion first, and you want to cross move, um, then you need to file a notice of cross motion. So make sure you file your notices. Then you need to file an attorney's affirmation in support. Okay, it is that document, the attorney's affirmation in support, that has all of your exhibits next to it. You don't annex exhibits to a notice of motion. You don't annex exhibits to a memo of law. It is your affirmation and support that you're going to annex 
the pleadings in the case. You're going to annex the transcripts from your case. You're going to annex any important exhibits or photographs or manuals or documents from your case, uh, any expert affidavits, any contracts. All of these need to be annexed as exhibits to your affirmation in support. Okay, they have to be identified and spelled out in your affirmation and support. And then you'll need a memo, a separate memo of law, a robust document uh, that is going to spell out the case law uh, in an advocacy way, uh, you know, a persuasive uh, memo, not just a plain memo where you're just saying this is the law, but you're, you're crafting it to make an argument. So you're going to want to put that in the record as well. So you need your notice of motion, your affirmation with all the exhibits, and your memo of law. Now for you, I have included all of this in the materials for today. And I know everyone gets their case evaluations, and I look at them afterwards, and I appreciate that I generally get pretty good um, reviews. Uh, and there's a separate um, request for you to uh, grade or score the materials. And you have to give today's materials the highest rating possible because what I wouldn't have loved to have had these materials before I had this case. What I've included in the materials is all of the paperwork involving um, the Harrigan motion for summary judgment from the plaintiff. I didn't put the defense paperwork in there because I didn't, I don't have their permission. I didn't want to seek it. And you could find it all on record. It's all public record on the docket, but I gave you a notice uh, of motion we made in the Harrigan case. I gave you the affirmation and support of the motion. I gave you our memo of law. Then I gave you a reply affirmation. Then I gave you the decision, what the judge decided uh, from the trial court level. And then it did go up on appeal and I gave you the appellate decision. Now I'm going to go through some of this with you just what to expect and on what pages you can find it. I'm not going to screen share and, and you can go through it on your own time after uh, this webinar, but I'm, I'll give you the page numbers of what to look at so you can go find it. And I just want to stress some important things that all these documents need to have and uh, what to focus on in the little bit of time that I have left. Okay. So you're going to see, first of all, in the paperwork, the name of Brian Isaac uh, of counsel to Smiley and Smiley, Brian's firm. Many of you know who Brian is. He's one of the most preeminent appellate lawyers in, uh, in New York uh, State. And uh, he is a, a living encyclopedia of the applicable law that applies to construction accident cases. It's remarkable how he can just reel off cases and different fact patterns uh, that he's aware of. He's argued these cases to the Court of Appeals, to every appellate department in the state, and uh, we bring in Brian as appellate counsel. Uh, my firm, except for on sort of easier matters, won't handle appeals. We don't do our own appellate work. So uh, knowing that this case, a substantial case, was uh, more likely than not going up on appeal and he would be handling it for us, we brought him in at the summary judgment motion phase. Because for those of you who have separate appellate counsel know there's nothing worse than uh, asking appellate counsel to get involved in uh, an appeal that a motion on a motion that you handled uh, under uh, 
at the trial level and uh and then they have issues with what you did in your motion that makes it more difficult for them to be successful on appeal so we work very closely with brian whenever we work on an appeal and we did the same in all these documents you have so we worked on crafting them uh and making sure uh, everything was was just right for this case so you'll see his name on all of these now i recommend that you do the same if you have an important case uh, that construction accident or not. If you do your own appellate work, always great. You'll Whoever's doing the appeal in your firm, have them work on the same motion, okay? Um, if you don't do your own appellate work, I would suggest spending the money and bring in your outside appellate counsel to work on substantial summary judgment motions uh, because you, for those reasons, you want to make sure that they're done right and to give yourself the not only the most likely chance of success at the trial court level, but then knowing there's a good chance of going on appeal, that the success will continue and that if you win at the trial court level, you'll be affirmed on appeal, okay? Um, appellate counsel just has a way of knowing the magic juice, the magic language, the words, the way to phrase things, what to put in the main motion, what to save in your reply, they're really good at that stuff, and that can be really helpful to you. So I always say it's always good to work with others. I've gotten to work with many of you on cases, and uh, and I'm not shy about bringing in someone to assist me to make my case even stronger. Uh, and they have that kind of appellate expertise like Brian does. Now, what you'll notice is that in the affirmation in the Harrigan case for summary judgment, the affirmation in support, you'll see that on page nine of the materials. It is very, very detailed. It's like a 90 something page affirmation and support. And when we were doing it, I even said, come on, Brian, do we have to like spell every little paragraph of every little thing that every witness said in sight to their deposition by page and all that? And he said, Andrew, you need to put it all in here because if you're going to ask the appellate court ultimately uh, to affirm or reverse, you want to give them everything that they need and make it part of this record. So you have to put it in there. It's going to spell it out and it's super important. And, uh, and so we did that. So you'll notice that the format of the affirmation and support, it's a typical format for summary judgment affirmations. It'll have the procedural history. That's where you talk about you file the summons and complaint, when issue is joined, when there was a, a conference and you attach all of that or reference those pleadings uh, or orders on the docket. Then you get into the statement of the case. And here is where you need to organize. You can organize it by witness testimony. You can organize it by um, chronological, building up to what happened of the accident. However you want to organize it, you'll see in our affirmation in support of our motion for summary judgment, we organized it by witness. And we started off with the plaintiff and we had subheadings and made it nicely tailored and organized to walk through the background of our client, of Gary, his work experience, then to the job site, what it was, who the players were, then what happened at the accident and all of that. And in it, we're constantly citing to his transcript, which we've annexed in full. Then we go to all the other witnesses in the case, the site safety superintendent, the representative from the rental company, the owner, whoever it may be. And we go through every important paragraph. We had over 400 paragraphs detailing out our statement of the case, referencing all the testimony, all the exhibits. Okay, So when you have time, go through that affirmation, use it. These materials are here to help you copy stuff, 
use it in any way that you'd like to help you, at least with the affirmation for organizational purposes and to get an idea of how to structure your motion when you file it. After you get through the whole statement of the case, then you're going to make your argument. And the argument is sort of a truncated or abbreviated version of your memo of law. You're going to take the big points from your memo of law. It's probably going to be almost identical topic headings, argument points. And then um, you're going to you're going to put some blurbs in and make a bit of an argument in the affirmation of support, even though the memo of law is going to have everything in there and also be argument. And you'll see that in our motion for summary judgment, we had three main argument points. The first was entitled, plaintiff is entitled to judgment in his favor under labor law 240 subdivision one. The second point in the argument was plaintiff has also proven a prima facie entitlement to summary judgment on his labor law 241 subdivision six, the industrial code claim. And then lastly, we put in that the plaintiff Gary Harrigan is not the sole proximate cause of the accident. We put that out there affirmatively because you know it's coming back to you. And we saved a little bit for the memo of law and we saved a lot for our reply, knowing what would be coming down the pike most likely. So those were the three points. And you can look at how we uh, prepared all of that uh, in the affirmation and support that's part of your materials, okay? now. Next document you have at page 111 of your materials is our memo of law. Now, folks, this is pure gold. It just is. Keep this memo of law, save it. It is a treatise on the labor law, at least as it existed back in 2017, which is when this was written. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some updates since then in the last five, six years. But it is truly a treatise on the case law that's applicable in a 240 subdivision one case. There's also a lot of stuff on 241 subdivision six. Talks about the cases that apply, the standards. It addresses sole proximate cause. It addresses everything. It cites to cases. It gives examples. It's really good reading. Uh, even if you've never tried a scaffold case before or litigated a case before, or made a motion before, take your time whenever you want earmark it, read this memo of law, it will help you on learning the law. And it'll help you because now having seen the law, the next time you go back to conduct your depositions and your pleadings, it's going to really help you to make sure you do things properly and help build it, build the case properly. I didn't always know that at depositions, I needed to ask questions in advance to knock out this sole proximate cause defense or the recalcitrant worker defense. It wasn't until I started doing a lot of these cases and learned the law and got involved in motion practice. Now I know what I just told you, the elements are to prove sole proximate cause and recalcitrant worker. So that's how I know, and I was able to share with you what to ask when you're doing these questioning sessions of the defense witnesses and your client to prepare your client to know how to answer these questions regarding sole proximate cause, recalcitrant worker. All right. So read this memo of law. Uh, take advantage of the fact that I'm giving it to you to use. Feel free to copy and paste things if you'd like, you know, uh, use it as you will. It's really good stuff. And you'll see in this memo of law, as in all memos of law that you are submitting to a court, you should have a table of contents followed by a table of authorities. If you've never done one before, they're pretty easy to do. It's not as hard as you think. Just go on YouTube and type in how to create a table of authorities, how to create a table of contents in a Word document. Um, 
I just did one, a table of contents, and uh, it was super easy. It's all about how you, you label things in your document, and then it'll populate one for you. But you always want a table of contents and a table of authorities. Then you'll just have a preliminary, like a one paragraph uh, statement to kick it off after those tables, saying that on behalf of the plaintiff, in furtherance of the notice of motion, affirmation and support, we hereby submit this memo of law uh, in further support of plaintiff's motion for summary judgment. Okay, so always have a little preliminary statement. Then we have statement of the case, which we defer to the affirmation and support because we've given a robust statement of the case. So we ask the court to please refer to that. And then you get into your argument points which are gonna be very similar to the ones in your summary judgment motion. But this is gonna be very case law heavy. You're really gonna to cite to all the applicable cases. You're gonna give uh, examples and fact patterns from these other cases and how they apply or how they're distinguishable. This is really gonna be the legal brief uh, that they're gonna use when they uh, are referencing your case and preparing for oral argument and for their decision, okay? At the trial level and at the appellate level. Now, you'll see in my motion papers that we annex the exhibit of an expert in this case. And I think I gave you this expert's report earlier on, Les Knoll. He was the engineer who came and evaluated this lift that tipped over. And, um, and so we put in, there's always a question that we have in my firm when we're about to make a motion for summary judgment in a construction accident case of, do we need an expert? So technically, the answer is no, you never need an expert. It's, a, it's to your discretion. And again, you use an expert when there is some type of technical or scientific material in the case um, that an expert can help bring expertise to to clarify for um, the, the deciders of the law and facts. So whether you bring them in for trial to speak to a jury or whether it's going to help a judge decide the case. It's up to you to decide whether you're going to bring in an expert. The concern is, depending on who your judicial draw will be, the judge that's going to read the motions, is if your adversary puts in an expert, does that lead them to say, oh, it's a battle of experts, there's got to be issues of fact, and just deny the motions? Um, that's always a concern. We decided in this case, though, that it would be beneficial to use Les Knoll because he is the expert who could talk about how this machine, this lift is supposed to work, um, how it failed. And without his testimony through an affidavit, we didn't know how we can properly assert that uh, in our case, in our motion practice. So we thought we really needed it to support our prima facie case. Now, it's up to you to decide whether to use experts. And that's a discussion that I'm always happy to talk out with you if you wanna reach out to me, or at least talk out with colleagues and think about. All right. Now, what happened here is after we filed our motion, we were the first to do it, first strike. The defense opposed our motion, even though they didn't technically cross move, which is what they should have done. They opposed the motion, um, stating that uh, it should be denied because our client was the sole proximate cause. OK, now, as a reminder, what happened in my case, in Gary's case, is he's on this aerial lift that starts off compacted like a scissor lift. He gets on it and then he controls and it elevates the lift all the way up to really high to where he needed to do his work. He gets in the basket, he positions the lift, 
But the way he positioned it, the worksite floor outside is never very clean. And it was on a board. And one of the four wheels was a little bit off, a couple of inches off the ground. But he said that whenever he's used these machines, if it's not level, an alarm will sound. And if it starts to tilt, uh, the alarm will sound. And in either case, when the alarm sounds, it locks down the mechanism. It can't extend. So he got in. He had his hard hat on. He clicked in with a harness uh, to the rail. And as he proceeded to move up and up, no alarm. It didn't stop. So he assumed everything's fine. And then when he was almost 20 feet up in the air, he starts to feel the thing rocking back and forth. And then next thing you know, it tips over and he gets very badly injured. The defense's argument the whole way through was it is Gary's fault. He set up the lift improperly. He didn't put out certain outriggers he, that he should have put out and he shouldn't have left this gap under the tire. It's his fault solely. This case should be dismissed. We argued that under the law, if one of these under other cases have already held that if a lift tips over, it is a per se violation of the statute and there can be no proximate cause by virtue of the fact that it failed, the safety device failed, it doesn't matter how it failed, um, they're liable. And we did the dance and we disagreed and we did five mediations before and after the uh, these summary judgment motions. And they kept saying, you know, we'll offer you this because we think we're going to win. Even if we lose the summary judgment motion, we're going to appeal. So sure enough, in their opposition, they put experts in, two experts, one with animation, one with something else, showing how it was all our client's fault. And I got nervous, called up Brian. I said, is the judge going to think there's issues of fact now? He said, relax, Andrew, relax. We're good. And so um, we, we threw it back in their face with our reply, saying how basically their experts didn't create issues of fact. They just come up with these nonsense opinions that aren't actually based on the facts in the record. And it was a very cleverly crafted reply. That's a page 148 of your materials. With two minutes left, uh, I'll let you know what happened. Uh, on February 28th of 2017, Judge Kenny in New York Supreme uh, granted our motion for summary judgment under 240 subdivision one, holding it was a violation of the labor law and saying that uh, our client was not the sole proximate cause. Uh, and it's a very thorough decision. Uh, the judge denied our motion for summary judgment on 241 subdivision six, the industrial code saying the provisions that we cited either weren't concrete or specific enough or didn't really apply to the facts of this case. We didn't care because we just won. Judgment entered, interest running. We got 240 subdivision one. So of course, what happens? The defense appeals it. So 14 months later, with interest running on the judgment, uh, goes up to the first department and the first department affirms. And I've attached the first department's decision on April 5th, 2018, uh, affirming it. So that makes for interesting reading if you're interested in looking at that. If you're listening via podcast, the first verification code is LCA467. The code again is LCA467. So hopefully you'll all stay with me for the next half hour to do the Q&A. Uh, this is the most interactive and fun part. Just throw your questions. Uh, looks like there's 10 already. I'm going to get through them all, put them up into the Q&A link, and hopefully you'll stay on for a little bit. Um, if you're going to leave soon, I just want to say a couple of things, parting things. First thing is, 
thank you for attending this series. My next series is going to start on January 4th, next month, right after the new year. And it is going to be how to successfully litigate a medical malpractice case. So switching from the construction site to the operating room. So we're going to talk about, it's going to be a six-parter, I believe, uh, each month, something new on how to litigate a medical malpractice case. So I hope you join me for that. I also want to let you know that if you haven't seen uh, my promotional information yet, I'm very excited to let you all know that I've launched at the Mentor ESQ website, uh, the Mentor ESQ Shop for Giving. And what this is, is it's a shop where you can get swag like this baseball hat or this water bottle, or you can get my uh, soon to be published book or ebooks or um, interactive experiences with me. Um, all proceeds, 100% go to charity, go to three amazing causes that I support. The Water Project, uh, which many of you have heard about, that brings clean water uh, to, to schools, children, communities in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Just uh, Hands Racing Foundation that gets paralyzed people into track cars to experience the feeling of driving on track, which is a passion of mine. And then the third one is Friends of Michael. Uh, sad to report that one of my interns, who many of you may have met, uh, Michael Simmons, graduated from Brooklyn Law School at the top of his class. He was clerking for a federal judge when he passed away at the age of 26 in his sleep from a pulmonary embolism. And his family set up a foundation. He was a gifted guitar player. Uh, and his foundation gives guitars and instruction to kids in Hartford uh, who are high school age. So all proceeds get equally distributed to those three causes. So if you feel like uh, doing good, please go to the Mentor ESQ shop and purchase something. All right, now I'll move on after that plug and I thank you for your patience on that. Again, it's all for good causes. All right, thank you, Terrence, for indicating that the city of New York is a 9% interest. Uh, and how does the interest get paid out? So basically, um, most retainers will have language that addresses this. If not, you may want to take a look at yours. But any interest uh, is part of the total settlement of your case. So if your retainer agreement uh, says that you're going to get a one-third fee on the recovery, whether by settlement, verdict, judgment, or otherwise, if the recovery is a million dollars and then it becomes $1,090,000 because of the interest, then your fee will be on that $1,090,000. Um, and then Warwick's asking if, do you get accrued interest on interest owing? Um, I'm not sure how that plays out. I believe that it's, I don't know if you mean, is it compounding? I think it's just interest just continues to run until the case is finally done. So what we happened is after, in the Harrigan case, after the appellate division affirmed our summary judgment, we settled the case uh, prior to trial. But if the case had gone to trial, uh, we would have had to have waited for a verdict. Uh, then we would have applied the interest on that verdict. Um, and then that would have been part of the recovery uh, that would go to our Gary and our fee would be based on. Okay. Uh, Samantha Lansky is asking, when can a defendant ever win a recalcitrant worker motion? When the employer testifies that the plaintiff failed to use the scaffold he was told to use, and the plaintiff says she was never told that, uh, isn't that all the plaintiff needs to do to defeat that argument? Um, what if other workers say they heard the employer give the instruction uh, to the plaintiff? Isn't plaintiff's testimony still enough to create an issue of fact? Um, yeah, it is enough to create an issue of fact. So if the defense has factual statements that shows that the plaintiff 
was was a recalcitrant, chose to take it off. I mean, I've heard people say, yeah, you know, we're told we know we're supposed to wear these harnesses, but they're difficult. You're up there. We got to move around a lot. They get in the way. So we usually just take them off. And if that is the testimony that comes out, and even though the plaintiff may say, oh, I was wearing it, I always wear it. Uh, they never gave it to me. Uh, but all the other witnesses show it was given. Then in theory, that's an issue of fact. Uh, but then it also means that the plaintiff can't get summary judgment. Uh, it means that the defendant can't get summary judgment. It's an issue of fact. Uh, like I said, it's rare when there are issues of fact, but in the fact pattern that you provided, that would be one that summary judgment would be, uh, wouldn't be uh, ripe for because of those issues of fact on what actually happened at the scene as far as using a device. Um, okay, uh, Cindy's asking, she's saying these are procedural questions, but the fairly new rules regarding hyperlinking to exhibits uh oh, you're getting to an area that I can already see I may not have an answer to. I don't really do most of the, the actual filing of exhibits, but let's see. Um, that have been previously e-filed, what is the best way to reference an exhibit that should be attached to a summary judgment? Do I actually have to e-file the exhibit again? Is just hyperlinking it? Just want to make sure you're covered. Also, any aren't statement of material facts now required for all summary judgment motions and how strict are courts when it pertains to word limits? Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, if you're a paralegal or you have your paralegal, Cindy. So I can answer this. In state court, as well as federal court, you don't need to relink up items that have already been filed in the court system. So for example, if you filed a complaint in the case and that became docket number one, and then the defense filed an answer that was docket number two, uh, and you want to reference in your procedural history uh, on or about September 1st, the plaintiff filed a complaint uh, in this action. Then you'll put in parentheses, see docket uh, number one, and then you can have a hyperlink to it. That's perfectly fine. You should not reattach that. Same thing with federal court. You can just refer to the docket number, ECF docket number, um, where it is. So it's a nice way to do it. It makes things a lot easier. And yes, you're right. Uh, you do have to have material facts now in all summary judgment motions. Um, you have to have that submitted. And yeah, word counts not only are required, but the certifications. In my office, we've had uh, motions bounced uh, after we filed them, bounced like two months later when we're waiting on a decision saying, oh, you didn't put the cert certification for a word count, even though we did. So make sure you, you follow all of those rules regarding filing. Um, Robert saying, do we recommend asking permission from the judge to draft an affirmation that's 90 pages long? I don't think we did in this case. Uh, and I assume you do not have to. Uh, again, I would just check with page limits. Uh, federal court definitely has page limits. I don't know if there are page limits now uh, in total for motion practice. If there are, then of course you should seek leave. At the time of our filing, I do not believe there are any restrictions. So we're able to file a 90 page affirmation. Uh, Collins uh, saying, I think the no expert required statement has an exception for med mal. Yeah, when I'm talking about no expert is needed, I'm talking about in a construction accident litigation summary judgment case. Uh, we'll talk about this in a medical malpractice case, but absolutely, if you're making a motion in any medical malpractice case as a plaintiff or defense, you need an expert. That goes without saying. Uh, David, thanks for supporting the swag. And uh, maybe I'll just keep this on for the rest of it. We've got some good stuff.
And it's actually nice. We have some winter beanies coming up, some blankets and bags, and uh, it's all for a good cause. Thank you, David. All right, Shari. Um, thank you for commenting on the causes. They are incredible. Um, Joseph, you got an error when you submitted your second attendance question. I can't help you with that. I know Kate will look into it for you. Paul is asking, does a general contractor and a construction manager have different standards of liability? No, they don't. Generally, they'll be one and the same. It's how they identify themselves. On huge projects, you're generally going to have a construction manager, a project manager who's really the general contractor or the GC, uh, but they fancy themselves as construction managers um, or site managers or project managers. Uh, it's usually on smaller jobs that you have your uh, general contractor, uh, but in essence, it's the same standard. Owners and general contractor slash construction manager um, are both held to the same non-delegable duties of safety and of care when it comes to uh, Labor Law 240, Subdivision 1, and Labor Law 241, Subdivision 6. John Lavelle, hey, my friend. Once you were granted summary judgment under 241, did it matter that the court denied 241-6 portion of your motion? Good question. And the answer is no. I could care less if they denied our 200. We won. We won. We got 240 subdivision one, 241 subdivision six doesn't matter anymore. And technically, I guess it would only matter is if the case, uh, I mean, if we got reversed on appeal, the case would have been thrown out under proximate cause anyway. Um, so I guess our scenario where it could matter if you get granted one labor law cause of action and not the other, but 240 subdivision one, that's the golden, that's the golden prize. You get that, nothing else matters. Cindy uh, is asking for advice filing a summary judgment motion for an unwitnessed labor law accident. Ooh, an unwitnessed accident is tough. Uh, circumstantial evidence. I mean, you don't need direct evidence in what we do for a living. I keep trying to remind judges that and lawyers that in all different capacities, but circumstantial evidence is sufficient. So if you have evidence in your case that they saw your client, a plaintiff, up on a scaffold at two o'clock and they just went to go get a drink of water. And then they say they came back five minutes later and uh, they saw the injured party on the ground wreathing in pain uh, and complaining that they fell, uh, even if they didn't see it, right? Or even if the plaintiff dies and they see something like that, uh, although it's technically unwitnessed, you can use circumstantial evidence. So if you have enough circumstantial evidence, you can still go for it and still make your motion. Why not? Earl. Hello, Earl. There are page limitations and word counts currently. All right. Thank you. If you have them handy, throw up the, um, the court rules, Earl, or the numbers. But yeah, so if there are page limitations, you need to abide by them moving forward. Good thing we got our 90-page affirmation in before uh, we weren't allowed to. All right, Peter uh, saying, I believe the requirement for a statement of material facts in all cases has been lifted, is not only required on a judge to judge basis. Okay, great. If anybody wants to look into that, please do so. I do not know the present answer to that. Um, uh, okay, Earl did post all of that. Uh, it's the um, New York Comp Codes Rules and Regulations, Title 22, Section 202.70. Point one seven. You can look in the Q&A chat and Earl has posted that for us regarding pages and word count. 
Steve is asking me, do you as a plaintiff recommend weighing in on a defendant's indemnification issues or do you stay out of it? Steve, that's a great question. And I will weigh, I won't weigh in on it on motion practice. You know, I stay in my lane. If someone's, if defendants are, have issues as far as indemnification amongst themselves, they make their arguments. I say nothing. You know, it's not, not my, it's not my party uh, to join. But outside of motion practice, to the extent it could affect um, settlement, uh, I will definitely roll up my sleeves and get into those conversations. I'm proactive, as I've mentioned previously in other uh, other seminars. Uh, just I don't think a defense counsel should say, oh, the plaintiff has a huge lien. That's not my problem. Uh, we'll offer what we offer. They've got to deal with the lien. Well, it is your problem as a defense attorney, because if you can't get your case settled because of the lien, maybe you can roll up your sleeves, get the lien resolved, and then you can settle the case for what your client wants to settle it for. Same thing with the indemnification. I had a lot of conversations during this Gary Harrigan case with all the defense lawyers because we had an owner, a GC, a rental company, a manufacturer, an employer, and everyone's like, well, we want to settle, but we think they should pay. They think that they should get indemnification. So I rolled up my sleeves and I started calling everybody up. What's your position on this? What's your position on that? Well, are you making a motion on indemnification? Why aren't you? Let's get this resolved. Let's move forward. So I recommend, you know, get into it if you want to get your case resolved. You can't be passive on either side. Um, all right. Uh, James Costello is asking, why not argue the law in the affirmation? Why must you prepare a separate memo of law? So you're probably around my age or older by asking that question, James, because back in the day, we used to in New York do what I've learned has been called briefermations. It's basically all in one, the affirmation, the law, but technically that's improper. Uh, you are always supposed to have a separate memo of law. On smaller matters or motions to compel, discovery or summary judgment, if it's, I don't know, uh, not a major complex legal issue, I guess you could put it all in, but technically you should have a separate memo of law and that's the better practice. I'm not saying you couldn't get by with just putting the case on your affirmation, you probably can, but the proper way to do it is with a memo of law. And if you don't want to take any chances on an important case, do it the proper way. Jason Kalfer, what's going on, Jason? Uh, summary judgment granted a plaintiff on 240, but denied on 241.6. That's what happened to me. Trial is upcoming. Should I drop the 241 claims to limit the trial to damages only? Yes, yes. You do not want a jury to consider comparative fault, uh, which they can in 241.6. You don't want your client up there talking about anything if you're the plaintiff about the happening of this accident other than how badly he was injured. Discontinue 241.6. You've got 240. This is what I had in the, um, in the Harrigan case. There's no benefit whatsoever for 240 subdivision, 241 subdivision six to keep it going. You've won the case, damages only. Okay, go for it. Congratulations. Uh, Stephen Kwan, administrative order that became effective on July 1st, got rid of the blanket requirement for statement of material facts. And now states court may direct. There you go. That's in line with what someone else had just said. So it's not required. Uh, Richard Cordero, how do you make sure the decision of the trial judge that you get the decision? 
given that the office of the clerk of court is understaffed and it could take months. Well, you just keep following up, you know, call up the court and say, yeah, we're just following up. We want to make sure this case didn't get dropped uh, through the cracks uh, and just get confirmation. They say, yep, we've got it. It's in process. That's what you do. You just got to keep filing it. Um, but, you know, I've never had a, a, a decision just never show up. Um, make sure you just follow up, follow up with the court. And if they say, oh, this one was sent down to the court, the clerk, then follow up with that. Usually they'll post it uh, on the e-file, the e-docket service, they'll post decisions. And then like a day or two later, then you'll get an official notice of entry from the clerk. So I believe the court can just go and post it directly right on the, um, the e-court's docket. They don't have to go through the clerk uh, first. All right. Uh, Denise is saying, uh, FYL and GC versus construction manage question earlier, the standard requires that you prove the construction manager, although titled as such, was fulfilling the same obligations as would a general contractor. Construction managers will only often argue that they are a safety consultant or otherwise, but always try to avoid being deemed the GC. There's a lot of case law on this point. It's easily proved if you look at the case law and the applicable contracts. That's great, Denise. Thank you for saying that. And that is why when you do these depositions of your defendants, you need to spell out what their role was at the site. So I think you'll see that in the depositions that I put in the materials last month. Um, whenever I'm questioning a defendant, I'm asking what their role was at the site. Um, and if they just say, we're just a site safety consultant, then you want to follow up with, well, who was the general contractor or who took on the traditional role of general contractor? So make sure you do that if there's any, uh, any uh, unclarity on who the role of the general contractor uh, was undertaken by. Thank you, Denise, for that. Okay. Stephen, again, posting the NYCCR rule, 7,000 words on moving and 4,200 in reply. That's not a lot. Uh, it just isn't. So you could probably request more from the court if it's a robust enough record. If you say, listen, there's been 10 depositions and 25,000 pages of transcripts and experts, and there's just no way we can do all this in 4,200 words, maybe we have leave for extra. Uh, I'm sure you would, be get, you would get that leave. All right. Um, Patricia's asking, plaintiff worker died. Other workers' testimony is conflicting. Will this preclude summary judgment due to issue of fact? It may. It may. I'm happy to chat with you about it offline. But um, depending on the facts, again, if there is a dispute as to the facts as they would pertain to the labor law. Again, if there's a dispute as to whether he was conscious after he fell uh, and for how long, or there's a dispute as to whether he made a statement or not, um, those factual disputes may not preclude summary judgment if there's no issue of fact that he indeed did fall off a scaffolding and it was in the course of his employment uh, during an enumerated activity under the labor law. So depending on the facts, that's going to dictate whether or not it could preclude summary judgment based on existing issues of fact. Um, Denise is saying word count is per document, 7,000 on the affirmation, again on the statement of material facts, again on the memo of law. All right, that's great. Thank you, Denise. So what that does is that gives you 21,000 um, words. So you would be smart about it 
and not do a brief formation, right? Because then you're limiting yourself to 7,000. So you're going to put, I would suggest all your argument, all your legal arguments in your memo of law, um, put all of your statement of facts and case posture and all that in the statement of facts, and then the rest in your affirmation, and then do your word count on each and wherever you're heavy, move some of that over to wherever you're light, you know, try and try and game the system that way. All right, Harry Forrest is asking a 240 subdivision one question concerning falling object scenario. JLG machine used to hoist a large platform up overhead to be connected to another structure. Plaintiff injured when he was struck by a metal floor grate that dislodged and fell from the platform because the clips holding the plate, the grate broke. So it was not the hoist machine and strap used to lift the platform that failed, was one or more of the small clips on the platform being hoisted that failed, resulting in the grate falling onto the plaintiff. Interesting. So if I understand you correctly, this whole item is being hoisted and a part of that hoisted grate fell because of uh, the clips were bad and that's what fell on him. Yes, I think that is still good 240 liability. They need to make sure that that is all secured if they're hoisting it, right? That's their non-delegable duty. If there's workers up there, if they're hoisting heavy stuff above the workers, they have to either put some type of um, a catch platform to catch anything that may fall so it doesn't hit somebody. They could put netting up. They could um, they could wrap the device that's being hoisted this grate in uh, bubble wrap for all I care or duct tape if it's going to work. If it's going to hold it so that they that the clips don't give way in the grate falls. It's their non-delegable duty. I like that case, Stephen. Yes, you can request more words. They're pretty generous. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Robert Shaw. Hey, Bob. Is the GC vicariously liable under 240 if the GC did not supervise its sub, which employed the injured plaintiff and was not present? The answer is yes. That's why these are good cases for the plaintiff and the defense doesn't like these cases because they need not be there. The GC doesn't have to be there at all. The owner doesn't have to be there. I can decide I want to put up a, a skyscraper. I can hire Robert Shaw to be my general contractor. He could get the iron workers, the site safety people, everybody put the plan in motion for me. And then someone gets injured. I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with it. He just hired everybody. But we're both have a non-delegable duty. That's the whole purpose of this law. They don't want owners or GCs hiring shady subcontractors that don't put protective devices into place and protect their workers because they're cheap. That's the whole reason it's non-delegable. It's saying, all right, you don't have to be there, but you better be damn sure whoever you're hiring and who is there, it's making sure the workers on that side are safe because you're going to be liable one way or another. That is the whole purpose behind this body of case law is to protect workers because most workers um, are not going to say, hey, I need a protective device. Hey, give me a scaffold. Hey, give me this. They're saying, I want to make money. I'm going to work. I'm going to do whatever I'm told. I'm going to show up. I'm going to nod yes, and I'm going to do my work. And um, I need to support my family. And the, the legislature in New York uh, did, in my opinion, a wonderful thing in making these laws to protect those workers and say, listen, don't worry. Even if your employer is shady and doesn't even own any safety devices, um, if they get hired and you get hurt, there's going to be someone accountable. So that's how it works. 
Um, Lyman, hi Lyman, how do you handle plaintiff's intoxication in a labor law 241 case? Well, you know, then you that would have to be the sole proximate cause. Um, so let's say the guy was drunk. Um, how does that play into it? Are they drunk and did they stumble and fall off? Okay. Well, did they have a harness on? If they're drunk and had a harness on, conceivably they were given proper protective devices. Um, it wouldn't matter anyway. Are they drunk and that's why they didn't wear the devices? Then yeah, that's going to be a problem for the plaintiff. Um, if they were a known drunk at the site and known to take things off and it was never followed up, then maybe you can say that his employers all knew that he or she showed up intoxicated and they didn't care because he was the best laborer you know, that existed. Um, so again, it's going to come down to factual uh, data and whether or not it plays a, signif a significant factor um, in your case in the injury. Okay. Uh, Jesse is asking, is a plaintiff, plaintiff injured when his torso hit into a lift basket guardrail due to a horizontal floor extension shooting out after the lift stopped? Uh, labor law 241 is out because it's only horizontal, no fall or falling object, an accident not due to gravity? Probably. Just because an aerial lift basket is in involved, you still have to show that it somehow is a height or gravity related. So it's probably Based on that, probably not a labor law case. All right. Lastly, uh, Alexandra is asking, do the GCR owner have any liability, industrial code violations, where subcontractor employee was injured by a defective power tool and there's no evidence the GCR owner supervising directing the work? Ooh, good question. Um, you would have to look under the industrial code and see if there's a violation there. I mean, obviously, it's not a 240. So the only way you can get the owner and the GC in uh, as a non-delegable duty is under 241 subdivision 6. So if you can find uh, an industrial code provision that talks about uh, defective power tools, then that's one basis. I don't think there is one, but check me. Uh, otherwise... Uh, the only other way you're going to get them in is under a labor law 200, in which case it's going to be tough. You're going to have to show either the owner of the GC knew it was a bad power tool and still let them work, uh, could have given them a different one, could have told them not to use it. Um, but without any notice, without any knowledge, I just don't see them getting into that. It could be just a comp case. I mean, we see that a lot where someone gets injured at a job site when they're using a tool uh, that jams or that injures them. And uh, unless it's a product liability case, it's usually not in and of itself a labor law case. It's usually, unfortunately, just a comp case. Okay, a uh, couple more questions in here. Um, the owner and the general contractor defendants decided not to third party the plaintiff's employer. This has caused a delay in discovery due to having to subpoena witnesses and documents. We've tried to get them to third party the employer in court conferences, but they refuse. Can we preclude them from third party later as a further delay? So usually, Patricia, you know, and that's not uncommon. Sometimes uh, there are reasons, sometimes not. Sometimes it just doesn't get done. But um, yeah, you always want to do what you're doing and press on them to implead. There's usually deadlines set by the court in conference orders for impleader. And that's what the third party uh, is. So chances are, if you go and look back through some of your compliance conference or preliminary conference orders, 
um, they'll have a date there. And if there was an impleter date, uh, and usually date to amend and all that, if you're well underway, then those dates are probably blown and it's too late for them to implead. And then you just have to consider doing the non-party discovery that you're doing, okay? All right, well, I thank you all. We are at the end of this. Uh, I thank you for staying on with me. Uh, this concludes how to litigate a construction accident case. As always, I'm happy to talk with you about anything and everything and about a construction accident case you may have. You can email me. My email's right here. You can sign up for a one-on-one -on -one Zoom with me uh, at thementoresq.com. And uh, if you're listening to the podcast, thanks for listening. Please continue to listen and please uh, give me a good rating. That helps. Uh, with the reviews. And uh, thank you all. Wishing you all a great holiday season. And I plan on seeing you January 4th, where we're going to get talking about medical malpractice cases.